0: You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn J-Town. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we might experience true flourishing. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name's Lyle. I'm one of the pastors here, and just like what's been said, just want to say welcome, and uh, to all the mothers that are joining with us uh, this morning. I want to wish you a happy Mother's Day, uh, including my mom, which I don't know if she would be joining in. She's at Aldersgate right now, so happy Mother's Day, mom. Bless you, and uh, may you may you have a, a blessed day today. And so, one of the things that we're we're thankful for our moms in so many ways, and uh, I wouldn't never even do it justice, justice if I spent an hour talking about all the ways we we're thankful for our moms. But one of the things that we're very thankful for is uh, our moms, all of our moms, it a ton of questions uh, as we were growing up, especially in our younger years. I did a little research uh, this week and found out that on the average, a mom deals with 413 questions each week. <laughs> Just think about that, 413 questions each week. That average out to be 93 questions each day, which goes down to four questions every waking hour. Uh, I found another study that said this, uh, four-year-old girls are the most curious. And I don't know if this is legitimate or not, you know, maybe you have a four-year-old at home and you're going, yes, this is for real. Uh, they say that four-year-old, four-year-old girls on average ask about 390 questions a day. 390 questions a day. That's averaging one question for every one minute and 56 seconds. And you wonder why you're tired. Amen. So, oh, man. Uh, but here's what we kind of know when we think about questions. We know that kids have a tendency to ask questions, especially in the younger years, because they're extremely curious. Uh, and, and that's just part of how uh, God's created them to learn is they ask a ton of questions, but we also know this about questions that um, that asking um, and answering certain questions uh, will have a, a way of defining and shaping your life uh, for a long time. So, asking and answering not not every question, obviously, uh, but there are certain questions that you ask and answer that have a way of shaping and defining your life. Um, think about college. Um, Kind of making that decision where you end up going to college by asking where you're going to go to college and making that decision has a way of shaping and defining your life. Kind of making the decision on what kind of career you're going to step into and livelihood you're going to have, so to speak, has a way of shaping, defining you. Uh, When you ask that question, uh, will you marry me? And your answer to that question will have a way of shaping and defining your entire life. In this text... And we just read these five verses, I would say, is the most important question that Matthew asks in his gospel, and I would also lay before us, it's the most important question that you can ask yourself and answer, because this question will define the rest of your life. So look at this, look at starting in verse 13. It's interesting that Matthew kind of begins this little section by highlighting um, where Jesus and the disciples are. It says they're in the region of Caesarea Philippi, which uh, I think I've got a map here, but it's 25 miles north of where they have been kind of journeying, where they've been doing a lot of their work, which is, uh, if you're looking at the map around, it's that, that large body of water right in the middle there is the Sea of Galilee, where where, where, where a lot of their work has uh, been happening. So they're 25 miles north of that. It's about a two-day journey. And they're right on the border of kind of like um, from sort of what they would say in this time, the people of God, which would be the Jewish people, and the other people, Uh, the rest of the world. They're right on the edge of that. And in this town, you will see, and here's another picture of it, uh, it's kind of like the uh, hotbed for pagan worship and idolatry. It's like this city is embedded into this, this, this bank of rocks here. And and so on the on the left there, you've got the the temple of Caesar, where the worship of Caesar that time happened. And the uh, and the kind of in between those two little temples, you have another area. It's, you can barely see. It. It's like a little arch there. It's the uh, the temple for the Greek god Pan, which is uh, what this city originally was named after, the Greek god Pan. So you got the worship of the Greek god Pan there. And then you move on there, and you've got. Um, I'm sorry, I'm. I'm, I'm blowing it here, I think. I got a little little map. Hang on a second. No, that's right. Yeah. And then the next temple next to that is the for the Greek god Zeus. So you've got, I mean, this this massive area where there's a ton of pagan worship and idolatry. And if you would look at the temple of Caesar, and you'll see it's, it's a big cave. And right above it, if, if you would basically walk back into that cave, there is a spring that comes out of that cave, a massive spring that comes out of that and in this time, they believed that this was the portal of the underworld. And that, not underwear, underworld. I like almost sounded like I said underwear there. Sorry about that. This is the portal to the underworld where uh, a site of demonic invasion into the world uh, came from. And this, this place, ironically enough, uh, where this, the site of this demonic invasion was called the Gate of Hades. And so it is here, right? There Jesus takes his followers 25 miles north to this city. He's on the kind of the the bleeding edge of the pagan world and he's getting ready to ask them the most important question that he can ask these guys. And it's the most important question in all the gospel of Matthew. Because he turns to them in verse 13 and he says this, who do people say that the son of man is? And son of man is a a term that Jesus often referred to himself. It comes out of Daniel chapter seven, and so, you know, he turns to his disciples like, "Like, what are the people saying about me?" And then in verse fourteen, you hear them replying that some says John the Baptist, others says Elijah, and still others says Jeremiah the prophet, and so you've got a, a wide array of um, interpretations, so to speak, of who Jesus was in this time. John the Baptist, Elijah. I don't know if you know remember Elijah is the only prophet in the Old Testament that didn't actually have a physical death. God took him up and some believed that Elijah would come back and, and sort of pave the way for the coming of the Messiah. And so you have all these different opinions of who Jesus is. And the point that you need to see here is that um, everyone saw Jesus as more than just a Jewish rabbi. Like what they experienced with him, what they Heard from him the kind of healings he was doing. And just, you know, they realize that he's, he's more than just a, a itinerant preacher. He's more than a guy that's going around and healing people. He's a he's prophet, but it feels like he's even more than that. That's why there's such a different array of opinions. And then Jesus says this in verse 15 after they kind of give like their interpretations of what people are saying about him. He looks to his disciples and look what he says here. But what about you? And you in the religi- original language here in Greek is plural. So in great Kentucky fashion, it would read like this. But what about y'all, right? Because that's what he's saying. He's looking at each of these disciples and saying, who do you say I am? John, who do you say I am? Matthew, who do you say I am? Peter, who do you say I am? James, who do you say I am? Bartholomew, who do you say I am? Judas, who do you say who do you say I am? And then Peter in verse 16 kind of as um, sort of the, the representation of the group as the spokesperson of the group stands up and says this. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And these two phrases need to be unpacked here just briefly here. So these are powerful things that, that Peter says. These are, these are words by faith that Peter would be able to say this. So. The first one is he calls him the Christ, and remember, you know, Christ is not the last name of Jesus. I always say that, being goofy and silly, but it's good for us to be reminded of that. Jesus is not Mister Christ, right? It's a title for him. So when when Peter says, "Jesus, you are the Christ," he's saying you are the Messiah. You're the one that we've been waiting for. You're the fulfillment of what is read and written in Psalm chapter two, where where God has promised that there would come a king that would usher into the kingdom of God where what, you know, the will that is done in heaven would also be done on earth. And Peter is looking at Jesus saying, you are the one, you are the Christ, the Messiah. But he also says he is the son of the living God, which this is, this is big for Peter to say. Peter is a, is a Jew and for him to say that this human being, right? He doesn't know the full gamut of who he is, but this human being is the son of the living God. He is speaking and saying that Jesus has equal status with Yahweh, the God of the of the Old Testament, or the, the, the revealed God in Exodus chapter two of, of I am who I am. Like he's saying, you are that God. And it's it's powerful for a Jewish man to say this who, who even when they wrote the Old Testament, in Hebrew they wouldn't even they wouldn't even spell God's name out in full they wouldn't even speak God's name and so here is Peter looking at Jesus saying you are the son of the Living God I'm he's giving equal status to Yahweh and it's like yeah does Peter fully understand all that he's saying here no he doesn't he but he's learning as he has observed Jesus over these you know couple years that they've been together that there's something about him that he is more than a teacher more than a prophet the way he speaks how he's healing people 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 is that he he's got to be kind of god in the flesh is what peter's declaring here this is a massive statement of faith that jesus say you're the messiah you're the son of the living god that's why jesus replies in such a strong um Joyful way in verse 17, when he looks at Peter and he says, this, Jesus said, Blessed are you, Happy are you, flourishing are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but my Father in heaven. In essence, all Jesus is saying is, look, you, you didn't come up with this on your own. you didn't read this in the paper, so to speak, and figure out who I was. No, this is by the grace of God that he has come and help open your eyes to the very nature of who I am. And then he goes on in verse 18 and makes this profound statement about Peter as well as the church. Look what he says here. And I tell you that you, Peter, right, which kind of changed his name, goes from Simon, son of Jonah, to now his name is Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades. Will not overcome it. There's two phrases here that I think need a lot of explanation, and I want to do my best to kind of help you understand what's going on here because there is a ton of debate and discussion and books upon books that have been written upon this little last phrase of Peter on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So the first phrase: On this rock I will build my church. What in the world is Jesus talking about here? Well, this is what I believe Jesus is saying, is that Jesus is looking to Peter and helping him understand that he's gonna have a a prominent foundational role in the start of the church. So Jesus is saying to Peter, you're going to play this this very important prominent role in the building of my church. Peter, whose name means rock, is, is Jesus' way of pointing to the foundational role that Peter will have, meaning that Peter is sort of like the start of the church here, not, uh, not as the first pope, so to speak. No, rather he's the first to proclaim and preach Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. And so if you, you know, fast forward all the way to Acts chapter 2, you will see after the Holy Spirit lands on them, who's the guy that stands up and preaches the very first message about Jesus? Thank you. Peter had one little answer in here. I love it. Yes, yeah, it's good. Yes, it's Peter. Peter stands up and in that moment preaches the gospel, basically saying Jesus is the Messiah, is the son of the living God. And 3,000 people are saved. And in that moment, the church is birthed. And what I believe Jesus is doing is pointing to that reality. Like you are going to be a foundational rock to the church, the start of my church so, so, Peter is to be this sort of foundational stone of Jesus' new community of the restored people of God, a community that will last forever. Jesus' church. That's what on this rock I will build my church means. Second phrase, and the gates of what? Hades will not come over it or not overcome it. And so, Hades is a Greek concept of a murky underworld of death and evil and in Jesus day it's the place and power of death and evil itself and remember where are these guys right now when he's making this you know this statement they're in cessary Philippi where the gates of Hades so to speak was it's almost like he could point to it when he's saying this on this rock I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades pointing over there will not overcome it. That's why the New Living Translation translates it like this, all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And what is it? The church. Dale Bruner, a New Testament scholar, wrote a great commentary on Matthew, says this, even the gates of death will not be able to withstand this church. Another scholar says it like this, the doors of the world of death will not be stronger than the church. Jesus is powerfully saying that all the powers of death and evil will not overcome the church. And if I was in a room full of people, I would say amen with a question mark and a big, huge explanation point. So here, listen, Jesus is not saying that local churches will not close. He's not saying that. Jesus is not saying that Christians will not taste death, as we've seen many do during this pandemic. And every year, people are martyred for their faith. He's talking about the people of God, the body of Christ, not being overthrown or destroyed, and ultimately one day rising from the dead. I love how J.C. Ryle says this. The church may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, Beaten, beheaded, and burdened, but the true church is never altogether extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It lives on through fire and water. The Pharaohs, the Herods, the Neroes have labored in vain to put down this church. The true church outlives them all and sees them buried each in his turn. The church is a bush which is often burning yet is not consumed. Amen. And here we are, 2,000 plus years later on the other side of the world, and the church is still thriving, growing, and moving forward. Here's what Caesarea Philippi looks like today. Here's a couple pictures for you. Here's another one. That's it. Where's the worship of Caesar, right? Most of us, even if we're not Christians, would laugh at that. Where's the temple of Pan? Gone. Where's Rome, this massive empire at this time? Gone. Pan, Caesar, Roman Empire, all gone. But what still remains, the church, the church of Jesus Christ, the Lord, the, the son of the living God, It is alive, it's advancing, it's thriving, even in the midst of a worldwide pandemic, the church is still moving forward. And some of you got this, uh, email this week where we as a collective of churches have, uh, we have another church that's folded into us. Um, it's a church out in Goshen, Kentucky, in the northern part of Oldham County. Um, and Chad Lewis and a team of them from east are going to go and kind of revitalize this church, Lord willing. They've called it Sojourn Church North. And so I don't, know how this is all going to work. I mean, they're starting sort of from scratch, and they can't even gather in person. And so how in the world is this thing going to get off the ground? I don't know, but the Lord has opened a door for us to step in and continue to multiply His work. When I think about the, you know, Storyline Church, as we'll be launching their team out in the middle of June, and Josh and his team will be moving out there to St. Louis to start this new church. Josh and I have had these Conversations leading up to this going, man, is this wise? Should we do this? Should we not do this? I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic. How, how's this going to happen? And we both have said, well, you know what? Like, this is the call of God on your life. And we affirm this. And there are, there are multiple things that we have seen over the last few weeks that continues to say, yes, move forward, move forward. A crisis does not negate the call. And so this, this church, is going to start, and a part of the story of storyline is that we started this church in the middle of a worldwide pandemic, right? The irony and the humor of that, but here's where our confidence lies, not in that this is Josh's church or this new work that we're doing in Oldham County is Chad's church. No, this is Jesus' church. This is his church, and he will see to it that his will And his purposes will be accomplished for the world in the midst of several communities that we're even talking about and praying for. Everything else will pass. It all has an expiration date, but not the church. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. That's what he means by that. So look, here's, here's the thing. Here's where I kind of want to land. I think there's a sermon in and of itself about the movement, advancement, and the power of the church. But I just want to land with the question that this entire story is centered around. Because most, um, most commentators would say this, that that. This question is sort of the fulcrum point of the entire book of Matthew, or the kind of the hinge, the central point of the book. Not because this question falls, uh, you know, right in the middle of the book, no, because everything that's leading up to this question is, is kind of moving toward Jesus turning to his disciples and saying, Who do you say I am? And then everything that follows this question is kind of helping unpack more clearly and fully what in the world does that mean? So this, in essence, what Matthew is doing here, it's kind of a, a literary place, so to speak, where he wants the, the readers and us, the hearers of this word here in 2020, you and me, to let Jesus ask us the very same question. Who do you, not, not the disciples, not your family, not your friends, not your neighbors, Not your church, so to speak, but specifically, who do you say Jesus is? And how you answer this question, I would put before you, will will shape and define the trajectory of your life. It's the most important question that you can answer because the most important thing about you is your vision of God. So in essence, because of the, where this question lands, Matthew is wanting us to hear Jesus ask us the same question. Who do you say I am? In A.W. Tozer's book called The Knowledge of Holy he says this. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So take a minute. What comes into your mind when you think about God It is the most important thing about you. Part of what my desire is, and part of the work that I'm asking God to do in my life, part of my desire for our church is that we would be a place um, where we can be, um, how do I say this? Um, yeah, is that we want a healing of our vision of God. We want um, a continued growth that, that our understanding of God would continually be healed because all of us, including me, have distorted visions of God. Yes, there's there's aspects that we understand and know and, and we hold tight to those truths, but none of us have completely arrived and have a full, right, accurate understanding of God. I would say a lot of us have these continued distorted visions of God and part of of the journey that God has for us in this sort of, uh, you know, use big language, sanctification, or the journey of, of maturity and growth and wholeness is to heal our visions of him. So I think this question is drastically important because you will become like your vision of God, as A.W. Tozer says, you move toward your mental image of God. So as weird as this may sound, like I'm encouraging you to hear Jesus come to you right now and hear the, the question, who do you say I am? Maybe you're here and listening or watching, and you would say, maybe I'm not a Christian. I'm not even sure how I'd necessarily answer that question. Or maybe you're still kind of somewhat searching and looking, and maybe in some way this pandemic has kind of awakened you to things that lay dormant for a long time. And here's what I want to encourage you with a couple of things. One is it may take some time for you to kind of get to a place where you can answer this. And And I just want to say it's okay. Our God is really patient and and caring and kind and and willing to hear questions and seeking and struggles and difficulties you have. Look, the disciples did not get it on day one. You know what I'm saying? Like when Jesus showed up on the scene, it's not like all 12 of them going, I know who you are, right? No, I mean, they've been working and traveling with him for a long time and it's hear that finally, they're sort of not fully getting it, but they've been watching Jesus do a lot of Messiah things, and they're starting to kind of connect some dots on who this person really is. And so I'm just encouraging you. Like, it may take time, and our God is very patient. But secondly, I want to encourage you and just say, look, do not let fear keep you from asking And seeking an answer to this question, sometimes we have a tendency to dismiss, downplay, ignore, numb, push this aside, like this isn't a big deal, I don't have to answer this right now. And I would say that the reason why that is, or probably the driving emotion that's driving this kind of dismissal, so to speak, is because we're afraid, we're fearful. What does this mean for my own life? Where, where is this going to take me? And I'm just encouraging you, do not let fear keep you from asking and seeking an answer to this question. Who do you say Jesus is? Because I am convinced, and I say this a lot, um, the way of life that Jesus lays out before me, for us is not the easy life. It's not. It's It's hard. It can be confusing. Uh, It's sometimes a real struggle, but it is the good life. It is in Him and through Him that life is found. The vision that our secular world gives to us, man, it will always, always leave you wanting. It will never fulfill. It will never lead to your flourishing. So don't Let fear keep you from asking and answering this question. May you hear Jesus this morning say, who do you say I am? I also recognize there's a lot of us who would call ourselves Christians, followers of Jesus Christ. And and I want to say to you that, um, I'm asking you, as weird as this may sound, to, to picture Jesus coming to you right now and asking the very same question, who do you say I am? Yes. Yes, there is a moment. Obviously, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there's a moment in your life where you declare the same confession that Peter declared here, basically, that Jesus is Lord. That's our sacred confession. That's what we call out right before we are we're baptized. And so, yes, there's a, there's a moment that that happens in your life. But look, guys, at the same time, this whole confession is also a process of growing more and more to kind of understanding what this really means that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Look, we can see this in the same passage. If you would read on this afternoon, you would see in the very next section, Peter is speaking like a demon, right? He goes from declaring that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living, living God, to where the very, I mean, gosh, the very next verse, he's speaking like a demon, and Jesus looks at him and calls him Satan. And so, so which, I, you know, I don't know if that encourages you, but it's thinking encourages me a whole lot because it just shows that we're all still in process. Like Peter, even though he declared who Jesus was, he didn't fully understand what all that meant. And when Jesus began to explain what it means that he's the Messiah, Peter goes, whoa, I don't know about that, right? Like we're all still growing. Or another way of saying this is that we need healing in our vision of who God is because all of us have a distorted vision of who God is. I was reminded of this uh, this week. Jordan Goings, who's our uh, family ministry director, is, is a pretty phenomenal artist. Maybe a lot of you guys probably know that if you know Jordan very well. And uh, Friday was Charlotte's birthday. And so one of the things that uh, he did for her birthday is he drew um, the cover of one of Narnia's, um, uh, Chronicles of Narnia, but written by C.S. Lewis, book covers, because it was her favorite book cover. And I think we got a, a picture of it here so yeah, I mean, it's, if you would look this up, you'd say, wow, that's is absolutely phenomenal uh, what Jordan did there. Uh, great, great talent. But this is on, uh, I, don't know, I don't know if it's the original cover, because if you go on Google, you'll find this cover in one of the books there. Uh, but this is the cover for The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it was interesting that one of the reasons why Sharla loves this book cover is because Aslan, who's the great lion there, uh, is playing... With with the kids, having fun with the kids. And so Aslan, and if you don't know this in the Chronicles and Artists series, is a representation of Jesus. And it's a reminder for Charla, and I may be butchering this a little bit, but this is kind of what I remember from Jordan in my conversations that the reason why she loves it is because it gives her a vision and a reminder that God enjoys and loves to play with his children. There's a playfulness about God the Father. I don't know about you guys, but that really hit me this week. To think that God finds pleasure and joy and being playful with his children. Like all of us have aspects in our own souls where we need continued growth and healing of how we understand and see God. All of us do. So this week, man, let me encourage you to get some space, get some time, and reflect on this question. Just envision Jesus standing there with you, sitting there with you, walking alongside of you, asking you this. Who do you say I am? Or maybe like an asterisk to this question or like a sub-question maybe, what part of your vision and understanding of God needs healing? And he is patient. And he is kind. And he is loving. And he wants you to grow more and more in a fuller knowledge of who he is. And I would also say of his love for you. Let's pray. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com slash JTown.